Hi, everybody. Welcome to the February 9th, 2018 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you very much for joining us. Let's get a quick take on Denver's Department of Safety getting a new executive director this week. Stephanie O'Malley is stepping down from her position to become a special aide to the mayor and will be replaced by Troy Riggs, who's been serving as deputy director since the end of 2017. Patty Calhoun from Westward seems like a pretty big change, and I also don't know what a special aide to the mayor does. What's your thinking of what we saw come down this weekend, this week? Uh, the special aide to the mayor joins the other special aides to the mayor who some have been shifted from positions maybe that weren't working for them. Stephanie O'Malley has been a good public servant. It didn't look like this was really her choice. She has moved into a job that you would assume the city has already taken care of minority needs and getting out and talking to the community. However, given how tone deaf much of what the Hancock administration has been doing, someone like Stephanie O'Malley who can listen might be good out there. David Copel from the Independence Institute and DU Law School. Do you see this as a move to have O'Malley in a new position that was needed or more as a move to get Troy into the safety manager position? It, it seems to be the latter. And you can't say that I think the people of Denver say that the Denver Police Department, the, the Sheriff's Department have been doing a great job in all respects. I mean, I think there's a lot of good people who work in, in those departments, uh, but the, that sort of bottom 2% of abusers hasn't always been taken care of effectively, and that's been a problem that, that goes back to the, the Hickenlooper of mayorality uh, and before. The, the fundamental problem is that Denver, unlike other counties in the state, can't elect its chief law enforcement officer. If you don't like your chief law enforcement officer in El Paso or Jefferson or Adams County, you have an election and you can choose a new one. And, and the people of Denver uh, are deprived of that. Congratulations to everybody with an early bingo on the uh, David Copel CIO page. The uh, Denver should elect its sheriff as uh, early in the episode, <laughs> well, which well, is not great. Only the sheriff, because the sheriff in Denver just runs the jail. They should elect the manager of public safety, who appoints the sheriff and the police chief. That's an entirely new square. That's good. Uh, well, well said, David. Uh, Pen Penfield Tate, attorney at QTAC Rock, also a longtime state lawmaker. What do you make of the move? I mean, this isn't uh, all that rare to see some shuffling, and uh, O'Malley was in the position for a long time. Uh, do, you, do you sense it being a part of a need that happened to something? Do, do you get the vibe <laughs> that uh, an event occurred that spurred this, or is just the right time? Well, I have to begin by saying we don't need an elective sheriff in Denver because the elected sheriff in El Paso County has never had any issues with performance or behavior. Um, you know, this is a puzzling development, and when you travel around town and hear people talk about it, they're confused. Part of it is, you know, Stephanie's been a good public servant, as Patty said, but the police, sheriff, safety department still has issues with behavior. People question the move now because the person who's assuming the spot used to work for the chief and the chief is under investigation along with his deputy around this whole Freedom of Information Act and open records uh, mess and so there's a question about whether he can be impartial and bring the changes in morale that are needed and then unfortunately Stephanie's been hit with some some questions about why move her into a post when I think it was the mayor's office of economic development recently issued a report that said they were actually hitting or exceeding some of their goals for um, minority and women business um, activity and contracting. And so people are wondering 
um, you know, why do this? And, and I know at least one other news station said basically Stephanie was getting paid to do a job that someone else is doing and apparently performing well based on the metrics the city has 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 published. So the whole thing, the timing and the way in which it was done and just the the optics of the press conference um, have left people confused. Natasha Garter rounds up the panel, articles editor of 5280. You have done a lot of writing about the Sheriff's Department, the Police Department, uh, and Stephanie O'Malley has been the head of that for a long time mm -hmm. as safety manager. What is your feeling about this announcement and her role, and maybe even a little bit about her, her legacy as now she moves on to a different role? Well, I think anyone who reports on, on this, this particular part of our city knows just how complicated this particular job is. Um, but there's also a legacy of how complicated this job is. I mean, if we had a a perfect legal system, if we had a perfect um, uh, prison system, if we had a perfect perfect jail system, you know, maybe this job wouldn't be necessary, but it is. And so no matter what, there will always be controversy and difficult decisions connected with the, that, that particular job. Um, and I don't see that going away any time in the next six months, five years, ten years. Um, what I do think is interesting, and, and just to give a little more play to her, her new job, is this focus on women and minority businesses. I think it's a great time for that to happen. I think it's a smart move. By, by Hancock to give a little press to that moment. Um, but I think it can go further. You know, I think it's great to announce a job. This is a special aid. They're going to look into this. This is a city, something the city cares about. But my next question will be, okay, now what? How do we continue this? How do we find other opportunities to really make this um, not just something we focus on or give a little bit of play to, but something that really defines Denver's um, political and economic landscape? As we edge closer to the Democratic gubernatorial primary, candidate Mike Johnson secured a key endorsement from former Colorado Governor Richard Lamb this week. As reported in ColoradoPolitics.com, Lamb stated that Mike, quote, has the brains, dedication, and skill and rare ability to move Colorado forward. Penny, I would argue that uh, Dick Lamb is one of Colorado's favorite statesmen. Uh, I would imagine that his words carry a lot of weight. What do you think of this endorsement? Well, if his words really carried a lot of weight, we wouldn't be bringing, trying to bring the 2026 Olympics here. <laughs> well put. But um, Lamb is a great statesman. When you talk to him, he clearly cares about the state. He he is not do he's not endorsing Mike Johnston as a favorite anybody. You know that Dick Lamb says what he believes, and it was a great endorsement. You know, Wellington Webb. We talked about him earlier. He came out too for Mike Johnston. So Mike Johnston has slowly and steadily for pretty pretty much the first person to throw his hat in has collected money a lot of it from outside Colorado has collected endorsements but it is still hard to tell how this election is going to shake out with the number of candidates that are on the Democratic side. David with somebody like uh, Dick Lamb making this endorsement is it a bigger deal do you think for Democratic voters or for Republican voters? I think it's a bigger deal for Democratic voters and a subset of them. D Dick Lamb last held public office in Colorado in January 1987 when he finished his third term as, as governor, the first guy to win three four-year terms ever in Colorado history. Um, so there's a lot of people who have moved to Colorado and a after he was finished in, in his, the main part of his public career. So I'm not sure how many voters numerically this is going to move, but I think it's a high prestige endorsement and for people who are well informed politically, potentially big donors, other elected officials who have memories of, of the history of the state, I think Lamb, Lamb signals a lot and Lamb is a, as Patty said, a thoughtful and independent guy, not a knee jerk on, on his positions on the issues. And so that, that's not only an endorsement of uh, 
Johnston's uh, abilities, but also sort of a, a signal about his character that he's going to be an open-minded guy and not always have to take the, the official party line. So I think it'll matter a lot among the most thoughtful part of the, the caucus goers. Penn, uh, as you, you've been a part of middle of this process, both as a lawmaker, as, as a candidate uh, here for, for the city of Denver as mayor, how big do these, how much of a difference do these endorsements make, especially from somebody like uh, Dick Lamb, who is a, a statesman in Colorado, but as I think David made a very good point, hasn't been on the political scene as, a, as an elected leader for quite a while. What, what difference does it make? You know, it, it, it's hard to say, but the, the reality is when you're in this process, you'd prefer to have the endorsement than not have it as the bottom line. The, the reality is, is you've got a former governor, Lamb, who was very popular, um, during his 12 years in office, who's been known for his independent streak. You know, one of the, the, the challenges, frankly, that Mike Johnston has to overcome is within, as David was talking about, subsets of the party in both parties, but within a subset of the Democratic Party, you know, Michael's choice, stance on school choice and some of those issues troubled a number of people, which is probably why you saw the, the teachers um, endorse Kerry Kennedy instead. So Michael's going to have some difficulty with sort of the labor union um, in, in that subset. Uh, and he's already been known as an independent thinker, so having someone like Dick Lamb endorse him is, is positive. You'd rather have it than, than not have it. What it's worth? I don't know. When I ran for mayor, uh, Dennis Champagne, the former mayor of Aurora, endorsed me. I still didn't win the mayor of Denver's race. So... <laughs> Uh, Natasha, the gubernatorial race for Democrats this year is very interesting because you have a lot of, I think, a lot of folks that in maybe any other year would have, could have very easily uh, grabbed a front-runner spot. But as soon as Jared Polis came in, it wasn't necessarily that he had all the name recognition, but everybody knew the wallet he brought to the game. Mm -hmm. Do these endorsements serve as a potential counter to the, the predictable wallet that Polis brings to the game? It would have to be a very big endorsement to go up against that much money. However, I think in this election, there's so many things that have changed in the political landscape. You know, it, and, and it, you can look back four years, you can look back eight years, ten years, it doesn't matter. The Obama effect, the Trump effect, um, influence of social media, you know, whether you do TV ads or not, there's just so many things up in the air. The one thing I think will remain con constant for quite some time, and this prediction, is endorsements do matter. Because people still want to know that somebody that they trust or they like likes this person as well. I mean, it's, it's why we like Yelp. It's why, you know, Facebook reviews matter. It's why Amazon reviews matter. We want somebody to tell us that this is somebody that they trust. So I think these endorsements will continue to be an important player. I'm not sure it makes up a big financial difference, but it's something that people are going to use. And so we're going to see these endorsements sort of play out all the way through the primary, and then after the primary, there'll be a reshuffling as we get down to a smaller group of candidates. After a deadlocked party line vote of the Joint Budget Committee, funding for the Colorado Civil Rights Commission will end effective July 1st. Speaker Chris Santa Duran was disturbed by the decision, stating that Republican members of the JBC are, quote, undermining key protections for Coloradans against discrimination. The commission is up for sunset review during this legislative session and could see funding reauthorized at a later date. David, is this the, the JBC kicking it back to the legislature? So if it's going to be funded, it's going to be something decided this year? Or this is, is, is this a very substantial vote from the JBC? It's a preliminary step. The Joint Budget Committee, compi comprised of three well-respected bipartisan members from each house, they're writing what's called the Long Bill, which is the General Appropriations Bill for the, the, the state government. 
this year the Civil Rights Commission is up for Sunset Review. Sunset is an idea introduced by my dad, a very effective liberal state legislator, who said that government agencies should not go on forever with really little supervision. And so from time to time, every government agency is going, or most of them, they're going to sunset on a schedule, and they'll only continue if the legislature affirmatively decides to review them. Usually the legislature does, and, and often the legislature may enact some reforms to improve the operation of the agency. So whether funding for this uh, gets into the long bill ultimately by the time it passes on the floors of both houses, we'll have had the benefit of whatever the, the sunset review on the commission is. People on a civil rights body, like the Civil Rights Division and the commission that sits above it, have to be really thoughtful about being fair to all the people. You know, it's not something even like being on a legislative committee where like, oh, I'm, I'm this party and we're gonna, I'm gonna vote for all my party's things and against all the other party's things no matter what. You have to be very open-minded to, to the whole people and respect everyone's civil rights. The commission and the division failed abysmally in that in the masterpiece cake shop case. If you read the transcript, uh, one of the commissioners was very hostile in a demeaning, negative, malicious way towards Jack Phillips, the, the masterpiece cake shop owner. And then they were completely hypocritical because after they say, oh, you have to bake a cake for a gay wedding, then other people come in and say, well, make me a cake with my special message on it, which is I'm against gay marriage. And with no justification, they turn around and say, oh, that's okay. So this isn't functioning as a civil rights commission that fairly upholds all the civil rights of all people. You can imagine a decision going one way or the other on the freedom of bakers to express their messages through their cakes or not, but here it was completely unjustifiable saying, you have the freedom to express the things we disagree, we agree with, and you will be forced to uh, do things that you disagree with because we like them. That, that's not civil rights. Penn, what do people need to know about what the Colorado Civil Rights Commission does and how important is this decision we've seen this week from the JBC? Um, what the commission does and the point David raised is irrelevant to what the JBC did. I, I spent two years on the JBC when we had Democrats controlling the Senate, Republicans controlling the House, so we had the same 3-3 split on the committee. And it's imperative that the JBC, that those six lawmakers, act in a bipartisan fashion and put together the state's budget. Because 99.9% .9 of what's in the long bill doesn't get changed once it goes through the, 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 the body of the General Assembly. It's very difficult to amend it because the, the policy is that as a JBC, once you pass out the long bill out of committee and send it over, as a collective group, no matter what your party affiliation, you support the budget, which is why typically the JBC doesn't make these political calls. If the question is arises over what the Civil Rights Commission ought to be doing, what the proper scope of its authority is, that's not a budgeting decision. You budget for it, then let the General Assembly in the sunset reveal deal with the substantive issues, and if a decision there impacts the funding, you run a supplemental and change the dollar amount for the commission. You don't hold up funding for the Civil Rights Commission as a budgeting exercise or make that the political call before the substantive conversation is had. And this is disturbing because it just shows how the polarization in American politics 
is just permeating a lot of different levels. This should have been a no-brainer. This should have just been done by the JBC, approved, and in the course of Sunset Review, if something comes up, if there's a decision by the General Assembly to change the mandate, change the funding, you run a supplemental and you do it then. But you don't start there because all you're doing now is teeing up, quite frankly, a massive food fight. Natasha, what do you think? I think we just hear for uh, a lot of good points here. Or are we going to see a massive food fight over this because of the decision of the JBC? I think so. I mean, uh, truly, the optics on this, who in 2018, in this, this world that we're living, wants to be the people who killed the Civil Rights Commission? And what will take its place? I mean, I just, I have trouble understanding why they want to enter into this fray on this discussion when, yes, it was coming up for review. If, if th this, this isn't about cake. It's about our, our state and how we have an equal and diverse and inclusive um, community. And, and when we take something away, when we defund it without reviewing its effectiveness, I really wonder what their plan is to, to fix it. Is it just to get rid of it? That doesn't seem like a good step for Colorado. Petty, it's an election year. We have a split legislature. Do you see uh, any sort of kumbaya moment of actually getting it back on track during the session? I think it'll get back on track because the JBC looks so bad in this situation. The Masterpiece Bakery case is complicated enough that it's going to the U.S. Supreme Court. It is not as cut and dried as most uh, bakery cakes are these days. So they're going to have to deal with that one way or another. You know, the Colorado Civil Rights Commission is about many, many more cases than this one. I'm sure Natasha has, over the years, as you do a lot of investigative reporting on complaints, they have been very even-handed, I think, on how they deal with most things. We've been there because we um, had a complaint filed against us because of our ladies' night advertising. I mean, I have seen them work it through. And they do a really good job and a very important job for Colorado. So I'd like to see the funding come back instead of just having a little hissy fit. Governor John Hickenlooper is looking at whether to dismiss the convictions of up to 40 Coloradans currently incarcerated for nonviolent marijuana-related crimes. The governor's office is reviewing these cases to determine clemency eligibility. Uh, Penn, as one of our two esteemed lawyers, you know about the whole thing between clemency and everything else. But let me just ask you this. Um, it's not rare for a lame duck governor to be looking at clemency issues. But for this one with marijuana claims, it feels a little politically tinged. What do you think? Only a little politically tinged. <laughs> I applaud the governor for doing this, quite frankly. My, my, my personal observation is I wish this would have been done five years ago because of what we're dealing with, um, it, with, with personal use of marijuana, uh, medicinal use, and the federal overlay. Uh, it, it made sense to clean some of this up quite some time ago and just, frankly, make a statement. We couldn't make a statement on whether to, 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 to give life without possibility uh, for parole for the Chuck E. Cheese killer, and, and we kicked that one down the road. But this one should have been decided sooner to make a statement and start dealing with some of, some of the broader policy issues because, as many of us have observed, this country lost the war on drugs decades ago. And so any vestige of it that remains just doesn't make any sense. Natasha, do you think Governor Hickluber is making a political stand here? Um, yes, but it's, it's a pretty safe one in many ways, I think, um, in particular because um, they've already sort of looked at this with seven cases. Um, these cases that they will be addressing are nonviolent. Um, they're about sale and possession, and, and they're going to take into consideration behavior well in prison as well. So um, I think that the, the general audience is going to feel 
okay about about these um, decisions if that's what they decide to do. But more importantly, San Francisco and San Diego have already done this. So we're not setting new ground here. We're following after others. Uh, Patty, you know the governor very well. What do you think uh, drove him to at least contemplate this decision? Common sense in this case. I mean, and Seattle just did it too, which is these are these are crimes that would no longer, in most cases, be considered crimes. They're certainly victimless crimes. In the way they are studying them, they are not going to let out some bad character who's been bad in prison or whose case was not just being caught in Civic Center Park with a joint. So I think it's smart for him to look at it. I think his group will do a good job of making sure anyone who do, who is excuse, gets an excusable absence um, deserves it. David, wrap it up for us. Was this a good move? Uh, a good move, but... Oh, only a start. We're just talking about people who are currently in prison for marijuana offenses. There is a thousand times larger, probably, group of people who have marijuana convictions. They're not in prison now, but these convictions, they, they might be misdemeanors, they might be down at the offense level, but they're still making it difficult for people to get jobs, uh, a permanent stain on their record, maybe they can't get a security clearance, all, all kinds of things uh, that are continuing to interfere with their lives for what might may have been a conviction, you know, for simple possession 30 years ago. So once these, we deal with people currently in prison, I think the, maybe the next governor or this governor too um, ought to go back and start issuing pardons uh, for some of those other offenses. Well, it is time for a very fair part of the show, Disgrace of the Week. As always, Ms. Cahoon, please start us off. I admire the earnestness of the Aurora Girl Scout troop that decided to go for extra credit and get smoking in cars banned in Aurora. But if I had to mock Denver City Council for passing the declawing issue with kitty cats and passing the ban on smoking on the mall, I've got to say I'm giving a demerit badge to those Girl Scouts and Aurora City Council for falling for this one. I don't see any discount on Thin Mints coming your way uh, this week from Aurora uh, Girl Scouts batting. David. If you're buying Aurora Thin Mints, you're supporting big government cracking down on people in, in their own private lives. That's uh, way outside the Girl Scouts' legitimate mission. Um, the state house passed a 21% income tax increase to fund a family medical leave plan. And you can argue pro or con on the merits of that, but our Constitution says tax increases are supposed to be given to the voters as an option. If it's a good idea, it should be sent to them. And instead, they're exploiting a loophole created by the Colorado Supreme Court, which spends a lot of time nullifying our state constitution. But a 21% income tax increase is actually a tax increase, even if you call it a fee. Penn. There are going to be a lot of Girl Scouts walking around Aurora this week. Uh, <laughs> you know, to my surprise, I, I, we were all pleased to see that, that RTD finally finished um, the Civic Center Station uh, garage uh, that is on Colfax between Broadway and Lincoln. And, and I've been there three times this week and noticed the, the gravel there thinking, boy, I wonder what they're going to do when they finish that. I was stunned to learn today it is finished. It's going to be a gravel pit. Um, hopefully, RTD will address that. Natasha. Um, I would say nationally and um, across both parties, the fact that there is no solution for the DACA um, kids I mean, just is, is depressing. Tennessee, something nice about somebody? Patty? The American Library Association is in town this week with a really big national convention. And Denver's libraries are such treasures and have such challenges, not just with technology, but with the services and the customers they have to work with. So my hat's off to the Denver Public Library. It does a great job. 
David. Colorado's Winter Olympic athletes, we're the state sending the most Olympians to the uh, Pyeongchang Olympics. And they're on a good run, too. Yeah. We're, we're going in on fire. This should be yeah. a, a good run. Penn. Well, first, I agree with Patty. As with my mom as a former retired librarian, I appreciate that. But I'm going to give a shout-out to Girl Scout Cookie Week starting. <laughs> I've already consumed three boxes of Thin Mints, and I'm just... I'm in I'm cloud nine. Just don't smoke at the same time. No. This has been a very uh, odd, odd episode of Current Center for the Girl Scouts of America this week. It should be interesting to see so the comments this week. cookies with a cup of coffee and a cigarette in a car. <laughs> Got it. Are, are you a Thin Mint guy for the record? Oh, yeah, Thin Mints. Okay, I'm just saying, usually Samoa is the way to go. but thin Pref mints, Preferably that's... frozen. Ooh. Frozen Thin Mints, okay. Natasha, good luck following that. I, I'm not sure that I can, um, but maybe connecting to libraries and just doing really important things for our state. Last week was a Saving Places conference, um, which Colorado Preserving Inc. puts on, and our Preservation um, Inc. And it's a great moment to see all the people around the state who are doing amazing things to save our um, historic places. It, it was really inspiring. Well, that is indeed all the time we have for this program tonight. Let me first start by thanking all the folks. We've been able to run into a lot of people in the last uh, uh, few weeks about uh, that they watch the show. They want to say hi. They, they love Patty. They love Penn. They love Dave. They love Natasha. They love everybody. Yeah, they also have some arguments here and there. But thank you. We always realize here at Colorado Inside Out we've only been around here now into our 26th season because of your support. And uh, speaking of that support, we have a really cool thing going on at CPT12.org that I want to tell you about. I prefaced it last week, but I want to tell you about the people PBS Nerd T-shirt. That's right here. It's one of the cooler T-shirts we've seen come out of PBS. It's a nerd love campaign. That's right. If you joined for $5 a month, you go to CPT12.org. We'll send you out this really cool thing. There's also some great Valentine's Day uh, events and, and little things you'll see on CPT12.org. Check it out. It's, uh, you'll, you will certainly be the envy, if, if not your neighborhood, while you're walking around getting Girl Scout cookies, at the very least, as uh, among different fans of Colorado Inside Out. It's part of our sustainer campaign. Uh, so folks that can uh, join us for a few bucks a month for this one, it's five bucks a month. But there's a, a lot of different levels, different ways you can join. Uh, if there's any Bob Ross fans out there, we have a variety of levels. If we have some happy cloud socks, we have uh, some really cool uh, Bob Ross bobbleheads. Uh, and, of course, the, the Nerd Love campaign, which is uh, so so uh, typically uh, PBS. We hope you can enjoy that. Of course, you can always check out Colorado Inside Out segments on Facebook. Uh, we're on Twitter. We're on YouTube. You name it. And we're there. Uh, anywhere you go, we have Colorado Inside Out. You can bring us with you. We hope you will check that out. And, and of course, uh, I think we're into about our last couple weeks on sun uh, Wednesdays and Sundays. We have the Vietnam War epic saga uh, for Ken Burns' 10-part uh, series. We're running pieces every Wednesday night and Sunday night. So if you missed it back in the fall, be sure to check it out. We're happy to provide it, and we're hoping you uh, uh, hope you enjoy it as well. For everyone here at Colorado Public Television, I'm Dominic Dazuti. Thank you very much for watching. Good night.